RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Travel used to be so easy. Well, maybe it is still so easy, but there was a time there over the last few years where the world of travel was completely turned on its head. People couldn't go anywhere. There were countries you couldn't get into. MIQ, quarantine, airlines were on their knees, uh, support coming from uh, usually governments, especially here in Australia. We've heard the story. So how is the travel industry doing now? Tim Malone uh, is joining us. He's a travel specialist. In 2007, he started his travel agency business in Auckland. His airline career began in Auckland back in 87 as a sales rep with, remember, UTA, French Airlines, later Air France, also working with Malaysia Airlines and Aerolinas Argentinas, uh, finishing in the mid-2000s. And uh, Tim Malone is with us now. Tim, thanks for joining us at Reality Check Radio. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for thanks for the chance to have a chat with you. UTA, they used to have green doors. That's right. UTA were the, the first airline that I recall that had a logo that covered the, the whole tail and went down to the fuselage. Actually, when I was working there, we were the only line that did that. Qantas followed on suit shortly after that with the kangaroo on the, on the tail and it covered the fuselage as well. But they're a white plane, UTA written in big letters on the fuselage and green doors. That's right. Yeah, and they were um, quite a presence down here because of French Polynesia, right? Uh, that's right. When when UTA flew here, in the, uh, we finished up there in the late 90, early 90s. It was around the world route. So New Caledonia and, and French Polynesia, both French territories. And so that was really the connection. And we had two flights a week. One went to Paris via New Caledonia, Jakarta, Abu Dhabi and Paris. The other went via Tahiti, San Francisco and on to Paris. So at that stage, it was the only around the world airline, actually. Wow. And uh, I remember they had DC. I'm, I'm reliving my my enthusiast days from, from that era. They had DC-10s, I think, later on, 747s. And wasn't, if you're a French person, isn't that a domestic flight from Paris to one of those destinations, Tahiti or, or New Caledonia? It's a domestic flight, isn't it? One of the longest in the world, I would imagine. Um, I guess you started off in France and you finished in France, but on the way you touched down in San Francisco if you were going that direction or in Jakarta, Singapore, Abu Dhabi and the other direction. So now it's definitely a long-haul international flight. Okay, right. Okay. It wasn't like flying a big, long Wellington to or Auckland to Christchurch or something like no, that. No, it wasn't. But one of the things I often think about with aircraft is that in 1987, it took 24 hours flying time from Auckland to Paris. Here we are almost 50 years later, and guess what? Still takes nearly 24 hours flying time to get from here to Paris. The yeah, speed I, hasn't improved, right? The speed hasn't improved. And, you know, more comfortable seats, um, better meals, lovely wines. But what people really would like is for us to go faster, and that's just never occurred. I don't think it's – do you think it's going to happen? I mean, Concorde was there, but it was hell of a noisy, burnt huge amounts of fuel. And in the end, only the wealthy could support it. So it seems that, you know, jet-powered supersonic travel um, inside the atmosphere is out out of bounds. But can you see a day where, you know, um, you one hour from, I don't know, Sydney to New York, that kind of thing that they talk about? Can't really see that happening in, in the short term. I mean, I, I, we read about Richard Branson, what he does and the ambitions that he has. Uh, but honestly, the cost seems prohibitive. 
And also the sonic boom is still a thing. You know, if you go up into space from, from well, you can't go up into space from London, but if you could and come down in New York, that might be an hour. But if you want to travel at 50, 60,000 feet, you'll still cause a sonic boom. And that was the Concorde's main problem. It couldn't yeah. travel over land. So it was able to go London or Paris to New York over the sea. No problem with the sonic boom. Couldn't go to Los Angeles unless it went subsonic, which defeated the whole purpose. Yeah. What a fine machine, though, eh? She Incredible. And yeah. and also Aerolinas Argentinas, before we get into travel situation now, didn't they fly over the South Pole pretty well? Uh, yes, they did. Uh, that was a, a very long flight. Um, you had to have a four-engined aircraft to do that. We weren't allowed to do that with a two-engined aircraft. So... Um, in those days, that was a lot, one of the reasons why Aerolinius Argentinas had it to themselves. They were originally doing it with a 747-200, which used to stop at Ushuaia on the, at the very bottom of South American continent. And that enabled it to fly from Ushuaia to Auckland in one go. Later on, uh, it didn't need that stop because we were using Airbus A340s, which had four engines and could go the distance. But it still felt quite a long way away. When you're at the halfway point, you were seven hours from either going back or going on to Buenos yeah. Aires. Yeah, that's a long that, that's a long way. You, you're nowhere. It's a long way to anywhere. I remember flying over to Brazil a few years ago and in the middle of the night looking up at the screen and seeing that the, the, we were halfway over the Southern Ocean. That's and, right. Boy, and I think the, the nearest um, um, land was Easter Island, and that was like 2,200 miles away or something. So, yeah. So, well, no, boy, that, it's a lonely place out there. <laughs> it is. And no matter how many flights I take or how many long-distance flights I go, I'm still the little boy who wants to sit next to the window and look out. So, you know, I'm I'm 62 years old still looking out the window. You and uh, me both, mate, I tell you. Yeah, yeah we're on the it same. It never gets boring. That's right. All right, let's get uh, into more contemporary times. So that was a huge upheaval, the time I talked about when we when I, when I sort of introduced you. Um, it, it was an upheaval in the sort of air travel system we had come to know and and feel so confident in its stability, you know? Mm. Oh, very much so. I mean, I still remember the day when we packed up our travel agency and we'd made half our staff redundant. We took our computers home. Uh, we had no idea what the future held. But even on that day, I didn't think it would last for two years. Yeah, that, that no one did. There was, remember, two weeks to flatten the curve is how it started. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I guess we thought we'd be home for two weeks. But it just it just grew and grew. Before we knew it, the borders were properly closed. MIQ was there. New Zealanders couldn't come home because of MIQ, and only at, during that whole two years, only around 10% of the people who wanted to come home could. 90% of people couldn't make it. There was no space in MIQ, and there was really no no way around the regulations. Well, it turns out in hindsight it was a complete overreaction, it's fair to say. I know, I, I know it's what people thought that they had to do at the time, but mm. really it was quite unnecessary the way it turned out. Oh, it totally was, and and we were dealing with it every day. So we, we were coming into contact with people who, who, you know, a fairly typical scenario during that time would have been a mum, dad, and two kids that booked their space in MIQ. You had to arrive on a certain day. 
you couldn't arrive a day before or a day after. They'd be packed up, um, ready to come, bags in the hallway, and little Johnny would test positive for, for he'd test positive. He'd have no symptoms, nothing wrong with him, but he had a piece of paper that said, you can't come to New Zealand. And we, we used to find that situation very traumatic, and it was distressing for everybody. Yeah, and the ombudsman um, eventually said it was a, a sort of like inhumane, is how he described it. So, yeah. So, so that's how that turned out. So, okay. So, what actually happened? The, the whole industry suddenly contracts. So, how do you deal with that? Most travel agencies either closed or uh, suspended operations. Many continued on with just the owner doing not much at all, perhaps selling domestic travel. Uh, in our case, we we invented a project called Kiwis Coming Home. So I was able to retain uh, four of my staff and we liaised with the embassies around around the world, New Zealand embassies around the world. We had, a, we had uh, social media going on. And so we, we, we were different. We specialised in bringing New Zealanders home during those difficult times. We never secured MIQ for people. Out of the 9,000 or so people that we brought home during two years. Boy, that's 9,000. Wow. Well, it lasted for two years, and we were, we were doing 80 to 120 people a week. For for two years, and so it added up to yeah, it added up to a little over nine thousand. Right. Um, but we expected all of them to get their own MIQ. I guess we got MIQ for maybe twenty or thirty people out of that nine thousand. But ultimately, we just worked with them once they once they had their space. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And what about availability of seats during that time? Because I guess the first thing the airline does is it doesn't want to fly too many empty seats around. So what they'll ground a whole. Um, proportion percentage of their fleet. So were you scrambling for seats or were there plenty available even with the reduced flying? So pretty much every international airline stopped flying to New Zealand except for uh, Emirates, Qatar Airways, Singapore Airlines, and I think Cathay Pacific had one flight a week. So the likes of Malaysia Airlines, Thai Airways, Hawaiian Airlines, United, Philippine, all of those, they stopped flying. And even the ones that were flying, like Emirates, were only flying three times a week. They had been flying 28 times a week to New Zealand, I think, and they dropped down to three. There were plenty of seats on those flights, Paul, though, and the reason was because it wasn't airline capacity that controlled the number of people that came into New Zealand. It was MIQ availability. Ah, of course. And so... The likes of Singapore Airlines, they were flying into New Zealand with a 777 capable of carrying 320-odd passengers or more. They were flying in with 30 people most days. And the same with Emirates. Gee, there must have been hemorrhaging money, Tim. Well, fares were high, and I don't know whether they were hemorrhaging money or not. Fares were certainly high, but I guess when you're – when you're an airline that's flying a triple seven into New Zealand with thirty or forty passengers on board, and only roughly the same going outbound, yeah, it doesn't make sense commercially, does it? Yeah, those three carriers you mentioned—they're quite interesting businesses, aren't they? I mean, Emirates—I remember seeing in Melbourne uh, back in the nineties. I think Emirates were flying um, Airbus planes back then. They were kind of in their first decade of operating. And I think they they only had like 10 aircraft in their fleet. 
Look at them now. It's just mind-blowing what they've done. Also, you mentioned Qatar, right? Again, um, a very um, a fast-growing airline with now a route network everywhere. They always seem to be kind of at the forefront. What is it about the, that part of the world, do you think, that generates this sort of the, the scale of that business? I think they're probably modelled along similar lines to what Singapore Airlines were modelled on, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Singapore yeah. Airlines had nowhere to fly within its own country. Singapore is the country. You can't fly anywhere. But they positioned themselves as a transit point, as a hub for for Australia, New Zealand to go all over the world. So, And Emirates have done pretty much the same thing. You don't fly anywhere out of out of the UAE, really. It's, it's Dubai, and you don't fly anywhere after that. But when we fly through Dubai, again, you know, I'm the little boy looking out the window. Hmm. No exaggeration. You can see 60, 70 Emirates planes parked up at the, at the gate, all ready to go. They're a very active airline. Um, it's incredible to see their operations, actually. Yeah, I should have mentioned Singapore because they kind of started that, that model, didn't they, the, the sort of international hub model? Yeah, and they and they did a they did a fantastic job. Um, back in the day, Singapore Girl was their advertising That's model, right? Yeah, you wouldn't get uh, away with that now, I don't think. <laughs> I don't, Singapore what? Yeah, what is what is a Singapore girl? What is what a is girl? A woman? Well, let's not go there. No, we won't. Uh, but yeah, advertising has definitely changed there. Yeah. Okay, so so you go through that period, um, total upheaval. Then it starts to ease off. Obviously, airlines in our part of the world, Air New Zealand, Qantas, took some big hits, though the government, I think, was there for both of them sort of standing in behind, and you can understand that. Now we hear that Air New Zealand are back at profit, $585 million, I think Greg Foran announced, and Alan Joyce, um, he's just announced a $2.5 billion uh, profit. But as I understand it, Qantas were pretty close to running out of money at, at, at some point. So, you know, it, it's, it swings and roundabouts. People are wondering, Tim, if now they're, they're price gouging, trying to, to earn money back that they lost during the time, um, rather than just sort of getting on with things now that, you know, we've got, we're, we're back to normal. So are they price gouging? Are, are people's grumpiness at what they're paying justified? I'm not sure that they're price gouging. That's probably the wrong term, but I think that most airlines around the world are charging as much as the market can stand for an airfare. So, you know, when when airlines put out press releases that they're doing everything possible to lower their costs, uh, streamline their operations, etc., I don't think those things necessarily contribute to lower airfares. They contribute to higher profits. So, um, and, and a CEO of an airline is not looking to reduce fares. He's looking to increase profits. It's about what the market will stand. And airfares now are generally, in my in my position where I'm dealing with it every day, they're double what they were pre-COVID. Double. We were routinely selling return airfares to Europe for eighteen ninety nine uh, prior to COVID, yeah. uh, three or four years ago. We routinely sell an economy fare from Auckland to Europe and back. Is it's hardly ever below three thousand dollars now. Okay, yeah. And if you're booking within for travel within two or three months, the fare is going to be three and a half k to four k. 
So okay, the for the foreseeable now. future, would you say? Well, I don't see it coming down rapidly. Um, Emirates, for example, are already quite heavily loaded for 2024. People are learning to book in advance. You know, the borders have been open and things have been back to normal now for, well, this is the second year. So a lot of people who couldn't travel during those three years, they traveled last year. Maybe they couldn't get a flight last year at an affordable price, so they're traveling this year. Um, And some, there was just such pent-up demand, Paul. And that goes for not just flights, it goes for... It goes for the whole cruises, tours. We're finding in hotels in the Pacific Islands, we're finding lack of availability there for certain times of next year as well. People are booking in advance, and that is the way to do it. Yeah, well, you get the the best deals is what you're saying, right? Well, you you do tend to. You get the best choice of everything. You know, if you leave if you leave things too late for say a Pacific Island holiday, then you know, you'll get the hotels that no one else booked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the market uh, votes uh, with it with, with when it books, I suppose. That the is end. the harsh reality. And although airfares are high, people are paying them. And so, you know, anyone that that has a look at fares from Gosh, if you want to go next week from Auckland to Christchurch, you'll be staggered at what you have to pay. But if yeah. you book three or four months in advance, yeah, you'll get you'll get the right deal. And it's exactly is that on both Air New Zealand and Jetstar? Because I've always noticed that uh, Jetstar is significantly cheaper, though I haven't looked late lately. Is that um, price differential still there? Yes, it is. Definitely is. But Jetstar really is a different product. A, a lot of Air New Zealand customers are totally obsessed with airpoints. Airpoints, dollar uh, status yeah. points, access to the lounge, um, you know. <laughs> really? Oh, oh, absolutely. And for people to to pay what they pay as a premium over and above, say, a Jetstar flight, if they want to do it and, and you know, have access to the lounge and some Amazon on Airpoints, yeah, why not? Well, fair enough. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, it's a different product. I always think it's just about getting there as quickly as possible possible the least time you can spend at a bloody airport the better oh, oh. anyway that's just me and i'm usually tight on spending anyway okay a couple of uh, questions to wrap up um some of our listeners will be wondering if there are still places in the world that have restrictions on entry um i guess the ones that are top of mind uh, usa you know bali australia maybe even south america what, what's it like out there now for restrictions Rest- covid restrictions are pretty much history at the moment they're all gone um the last the last two two major countries to change were the usa they only changed in may this year uh so that you know you no longer need to be vaccinated or show a vaccine pass or anything to go to the usa and the same with indonesia which is bali for kiwis they were they were the last country to change but they have now changed there's actually only one exception and that is uh, cruises that touch Australia. The cruise companies themselves are not worried about have you showing a pass or what your status is, but the Australian government still is. And so, any cruise- why, why, um, why? I guess yeah, why. I guess we need to stop asking why don't COVID rules make any sense because they never made any sense. And this is probably the last COVID rule there. So don't expect it to make sense. It doesn't matter. You can arrive into Australia on a plane, but you can't arrive on a cruise ship. 
Is uh, that because um, cruise ships are perceived as petri dishes? <laughs> I, Floating I, I petri know. dishes. <laughs> yeah. What what did um what did uh, um Barry Humphreys always used to say that uh, Australia had more culture than a penicillin factory? <laughs> uh, well, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he was saying that ironically. All right. Um, okay. Is there anything more to know? Okay. What's for people who are thinking of traveling? What is the hot product right now? What is the hot destination? If you boil it down. It's hard to think of one, and and that's that's been quite truthful. You know, we're we're a five person business, and people are booking all over the place. Uh, I, I Australia is an easy one, um, and it doesn't matter how often I go to Australia, uh, it's easy to get there. Every time I see the Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Sydney Opera House or a walk walk along the rocks, that reminds me why I'm in this business because Australia still feels special. The Gold Coast surface. Wow. Program. Okay, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah, it does to me. Um, but the USA is is on special now. Um, that's on sale for the next couple of weeks. So um, we're booking more than that, more of that than usual. And I guess the other thing that people are that that we're doing a lot of is organised tours. You know, top deck and Kentucky for the under thirty fives. They don't necessarily want the responsibility of booking themselves for on trains and coaches and hotels and stuff all around Europe for 28 days. So those options are, are perfect for, for that age group and they're beginning to get full for 2024. So it's just another reason to think ahead. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, interesting to catch up on the travel industry with you, Tim. If people want to get in touch, what's the best way to do that? If they want to get in touch with you, Tim Malone, travel specialist. Just Google my name, I guess, and uh, and that, that's I'm all over the internet. <laughs> if you okay. Google my name, and uh, you'll yep. find us. Yeah. Okay, Tim. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, and telling us about that. Um, I'm always uh, I always like talking about well, mainly flying things, but that's travel these days. So the two intersect nicely. So uh, maybe we'll chat again sometime. All the best. Thanks, Paul. Lovely to chat. Bye. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.